Take your Bibles and you can open them to the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 3. And I want to, before we actually look at the text from Ephesians chapter 3 verse 20, I want to do a, a, a tour, a short tour um, through some of the Old Testament primarily to refresh us, uh, to reacquaint us with what God can do. And I think it's important that we hear this uh, this morning um, in the context of what we're going to look at, what Paul says. So this is an opportunity for us to get reacquainted with what God can do. And I want to just look at the lives of different individuals and how God worked through them in, in powerful ways. Uh, the first would be just to look at Moses in Exodus chapter 14. Moses was the, the individual chosen by God to leave the people of uh, uh, Israel out of Egypt. And Moses came to a very tough spot. He was leading the people out. They had just fled from Egypt. And now they found themselves with the Reed Sea behind them uh, and, and nowhere to go. And this massive horde of Egyptian armies and chariots in front of them. And they were stuck. And uh, at that point, they, they sort of cry out to God. And Moses says, well, this is what we're going to do. And in, Mo, uh, in Exodus chapter 14... Um, we see that it says uh, in verse 21, Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And you read through that account then as the people of Israel go through, and you come to verse 26, then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. The sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. God's power working through an outstretched hand. We jump ahead to, uh, to Joshua. In uh, the book of uh, uh, Joshua, actually named after him, Joshua chapter 10. Joshua was the individual chosen by God to lead the people of Israel into the land of Canaan. And in this particular instance, they were up against it tough. They were fighting a a, a battle, and they were finding that they were running out of daylight. And so at that point, Moses spoke to the Lord, or, or sorry, Joshua spoke to the Lord, chapter 10, verse 12, in the sight of Israel, and he said, Sun, stand still, and moon, in the valley of Ajalon, and the sun stood still, and the moon stopped until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. In verse 14, there has no, not been a day like it before or since when the Lord obeyed the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. Through the voice of a man, the sun stopped and the moon stopped for a full day. You come to another one. Uh, the workers in the tabernacle. This is a, a little different twist on the way God works and the power of God. Again, back in the book of Exodus chapter 35, God had told the, the, to Moses and given him the plans and the instructions to build this tabernacle. And this was an amazing place. It was a place where the presence of God would dwell. And there was all kinds of designs that had to be built. All kinds of things that had to be shaped out of bronze and shaped out of silver and shaped out of gold. Embroideries that had to be made. uh, Materials that had to be worked with that were unfamiliar to the people. And in uh, chapter 35, verse 30, Moses said to the people of Israel, See, the Lord has called called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and he has filled him with the Spirit of God, 
with skill, with intelligence, with knowledge, and with all craftsmanship to devise artistic designs, to work in gold and silver and bronze, in cutting stones for setting and in carving wood for work in every skilled craft. And he has inspired him to teach. He has filled them with skill to do every sort of work done by an engraver or by a designer or by an embroiderer in blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twisted linen or by a weaver, by any sort of workman or skilled designer. In other words, they were up against this building. They were building things that they thought were unbuildable and undoable. And God filled them with skill and wisdom to work the materials in such a way to produce what God had commanded them to build. You come to uh, another one in the book of Judges. This is the story of Gideon. Some of you may be familiar. If you've grown up in Sunday school, these are all familiar stories to you. But in the book of Judges, Judges chapter 7, God had picked a young man, Gideon, to be one of the deliverers for his people. And uh, Gideon was uh, up against this massive host of people. In fact, in verse 12 of chapter 7, it says, And the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east lay along the valley like locusts in abundance. That word picture is, is, is pretty amazing. They lay across the valley like locusts in abundance. I don't know if you've ever seen a video of a, of a swarm of locusts. It's like the sky goes dark because of the multiple millions of locusts. And then he goes on and he says, and, and their camels were without number as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. This is what Gideon was up against. And so Gideon is rallying the troops and it says, The Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand. Lest Israel boast over me, saying, My hand has saved me. Now therefore proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 people returned and 10,000 remained. 10,000 to go up against a host that was greater than a bunch of locusts. And he says to him, that's too many. And so he says to Gideon, okay, I want you to go and take those 10,000 and we're going to call them even more. And so there's a river there and I want you to go tell them to get a drink. And the way in which they drink is the way that we're going to split this group up even more. And so there's a bunch of people that get to the river and they, they stick their head right down in the water and they start drinking water. 10,700 or 9,700 of them. God says, send that group home. The 300 who, who lifted up the water and drank it, they're the ones we're going to keep. With that group of people, you're going to go and defeat the Amalekites and the Midianites. And then the story goes even further that Gideon probably was a little bit um, cautious. We know he was a little bit fearful. So he snuck down into the camp of the Midianites. And as he snuck down into the camp, it says that he heard about one man that was recounting a dream that he had to another man. Who gave him the dream? Obviously, God had given him this dream. And the man said to his buddy, Behold, I dreamed a dream, and behold, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian and came to the tent and struck it so that it fell and turned it upside down, so that the tent lay flat. And his comrade said, This is none other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. 
And the rest of the story goes and talks about the great victory that Gideon had with the hand of God or the power of God working through him to beat that army. You go um, to, to uh, Esther. In Esther chapter uh, 4, we find there Esther is up against it strong. Uh, finally, the, her people have been revealed, the, the people of Jews, and there was a man that has determined that every single one of them to the last one of them was to be killed or slaughtered. And Esther um, was the one person who could influence the king. But they hadn't had a very good relationship for the last month. And so for 30 days, she hasn't even talked to the king. And the king is a pretty powerful guy. And if you walk into his presence without an invitation, he has the power to kill you on the spot. And so Esther comes to Mordecai, and he, or uh, Mordecai comes to Esther and says, Esther, uh, you need to go and talk to the king, and you need to get some help from him. Esther says, if I do that, I potentially am going to die. And he says, if you don't do that, then God will raise somebody else to do that. And so she says, go and fast and pray for three days. I will fast and free, pray for three days, and then we'll go see what happens. And it says after that, on the third day, Esther put on her royal robes. She stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance of the palace. When the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight. He held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. The power of God granting favor to a young woman in the presence of king. So here again, you have Moses who raises his hand. You have Gideon, or, or you have Joshua who by his voice commands the sun to stand still. You have Gideon uh, who in the power of God is given this, this whole host, host of the uh, Amalekites and the Midianites. You have Esther who is granted favor before a king by the power of God. We've got some more here. Um, you go to um, Elijah and, or Elisha and a widow. In 2 Kings chapter 4, uh, verse 7, uh, this widow who is in big trouble, uh, she has, uh, she, her husband was a prophet, uh, he died, and she had a debt that was left remaining. Got to find it here while I'm talking. And uh, so she had this massive debt that she could not pay. The creditors were now coming to this widow and were saying to her, okay, if you can't pay this debt, we're going to take your two sons, we're going to make them slaves until they have paid off the whole debt that you owe us. Obviously, the woman was upset about that, and she comes to Elisha, and Elisha said to her, what shall I do for you? Tell me, what do you have in the house? She said, your servant has nothing in the house except a jar of oil. He said to her, go outside, borrow vessels from all your neighbors, empty vessels and not too few. Then go in and shut the door behind yourself and your sons and pour into all these vessels, and when one is full, set it aside. So she went from him and shut the door behind herself and her and her sons, and as she poured, they brought vessels to her. When the vessels were full, she said to her son, Bring me another vessel. He said to her, There is not another. Then the oil stopped flowing. She came and told the man of God, and he said, Go, sell the oil and pay your debts, and you or your sons can live on the rest. The power of God working through a widow who filled one vessel after another vessel after another vessel until there were no more vessels in order that she could pay her debt off. You go from there to Elijah. Elijah was a man just like you and I. And um, James tells us a little about Elijah in um, James chapter 5. Um, uh, where where uh, he's talking about prayer. And in verse um, 16 it says, The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. 
Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Elijah, a man like you and I, who prayed before God, and God granted to him what he could not do on his own, that the rain would stop, and then three and a half years later, he prayed again, and it started to rain again. You go from Elijah to the book of Daniel, and uh, Daniel is a fascinating account of the power of God working through individuals. Um, in Daniel chapter 2, we have this situation in Daniel, Daniel chapter 2 where you have this pretty powerful king. And this king has this dream. And he's got all these wise men around him. And, and they're, they're those who, who know quite a bit, but they don't know everything. And so he goes to his wise men and he says to them, he says, um, I want you to give me the interpretation to the dream. The wise men say to him, okay, well, tell us the dream, O king. And the king says, I'm not an idiot. If I tell you the dream, then you're going to make up an interpretation. The way that I'm really going to know that you're giving me the right interpretation is if you tell me the dream first and then give me the interpretation. And his wise men say to him, there is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. For no great and powerful king has ever asked such a thing of a magician, enchanter, or Chaldean. The thing that the king asked is too difficult. No one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. So the king's really ticked off. He sends his bodyguard out and he says, I want you to kill every one of my wise men. We want to be a wise man at that point. So they go out and they start to collect all these wise men and they come to Daniel. And Daniel says, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, what's going on? Why such the urgency to kill us all? Tells him the story. Daniel says, okay, I will tell you the dream and the interpretation. Just give me some time. So what does Daniel do? It says that he gathers together his friends, Hannah, Mishael, and Azariah, and he told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning the mystery, so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. And then just this sort of sentence. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision in the night. The power of God working through a man who is willing to pray and say, God, I need help. You go from there to the next chapter, Daniel chapter 3, and it's, it's about the three boys, um, the three young men that were his companions in prayer. And these, uh, the, the king had set up this massive idol on this plane, and he's calling all these people, and he, he says, at the voice of my orchestra, I want every single person to fall flat on their face and worship this idol. So the orchestra starts playing. Everyone's falling down like flies except three young men who stand up boldly before the king. If you want to know how to tick off a king, that's how you tick off a king. He went after these guys and he said to them, uh, he was mad at them. He says, "Uh, uh, if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into the burning fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Their response If this be so, O king, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then it says, and Nebuchadnezzar was filled with rage. How dare these three young men defy me? And it says, I want you to heat up that furnace seven times hotter than normal. In fact, it was so hot that when they bound up these three men and carried them to throw them in the fire, the guys that threw them in the fire were killed because of the heat of the fire. 
Here these guys are thrown in to the fire. In a, in a matter of I don't know how long, all of a sudden the king is, is dumbfounded. As he looks into that fiery furnace, he says, Don't I see three men standing and walking around? And isn't there a fourth one with him that looks like the, the, the Son of God? And then the king comes near, and he must have, couldn't have come too near because this is a pretty, pretty hot fire. And he, he calls to them, and he says, Come out! Come out of there! And so they come out, and it says that they saw that the fire had not any power over the bodies of the men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and there was no smell of fire upon them. The power of God that was working in those young men who dared to defy a king with that much power. There's other ones that we can look at, but I think you get the picture. We're getting acquainted again with what God is able to do. And there's so much more that God is able to do, not only in and through us, but God is the one. You just read the book of Jonah. He appoints a whale to swallow a man. He appoints a a tree to grow. He appoints a worm to eat the tree. He appoints a scorching wind to blow. Our God controls all of nature, controls all of this world, all of its elements to do his bidding so that his purposes are fulfilled. And then we read about God's power and salvation. The extraordinary demonstration of God's power and salvation. Who is able to take those who are dead in their sins and trespasses and make them alive in Christ Jesus. Now, we turn to Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20. With that kind of context in the background. And we read this. Now, to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we can ask or imagine according to His power that is at work within us. To Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus and in all generations now and forevermore. Amen. Paul's bold statement. Will you believe it? As I was thinking about this, Paul has just prayed this amazing prayer. He's prayed that we might have strength uh, to be filled with the Spirit so that Christ might have a home in our hearts. He's prayed that the roots of our lives will be like a, a foundation that go down deep into the amazing soil of God's marvelous love. He's prayed that our minds might be exploded as we come to wrestle with the height and the depth and the length and the breadth of the love of Christ. He's prayed that we might be filled with the fullness of God. And I wonder if he put down his pen and he says, wow, I've just asked a lot. That's that, that man, I've asked a lot of God. And it's, that, it's all of a sudden like he picks up his pen and he thinks, I haven't said enough. I haven't asked enough. God is able to do far more abundantly than I can ask or imagine. How much can God do? Well, listen to how he puts it. See, our prayers have a way of limiting God. But God says, no, I am beyond the limit of your praying, of your asking, of your imagining. He says, look at the, the, the way that it builds. God can do all that we ask. God can do all that we ask or can think of asking. God can do more than all we can ask or think of asking. 
God can do more abundantly than all that we ask or think of asking. God can do far more abundantly than we can think or ask. See, our ability to ask, indeed our ability even to conceive what we might ask, can never stretch the limits of what God can actually accomplish through us. How much can God do? More than we ask. I love this because Paul doesn't sort of slap us for for asking big before God. In fact, there's no reproach for asking at all. In fact, haven't we just seen over the last couple of weeks that one of the things that that Paul has been praying and, and one of the things that has astounded him is that we actually have access to God. And not do we not only just have access, he says we have bold, confident, free access to God. So he's not saying don't ask anything or be careful what you ask. And so we come to a father who invites us to come into his presence. See, Paul does not limit the father's care and ability to what we can ask. There is too much of our humanity in our request to limit God's responses. Because we are human, our requests are naturally feeble and finite. We ask within the limits of our human vision. But God is able to do so much more. He sees into eternity past. He sees into eternity future. He knows what is needful for me. He knows what is needful for those that I am working with and those that I speak to. God is able to do abundantly more than I can ask. How much is God able to do? Not only more than I can ask, but he's able to do more than I can imagine. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9, he says there, a verse that we've heard of before, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. You jump back to Isaiah 64, 4, which is a passage, I think, which that comes from. And in Isaiah 64, 4, uh, he says there, From of old, no one has heard, no one has perceived, they haven't even thought about this, no eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait on him. How do we measure God? How do you measure God? We might measure him by creation. We might measure him by his providence. We might measure him by the things that we read about him. These are the, you know, I gave you that sort of that quick list of nine things about God just to sort of get the wheels of your mind turning that God is so much bigger than what we can ever think of. His power is so much greater than we can ever conceive of. Such is the God who hears our prayers and is able to do more than we can ask or imagine. And it's in that light that sometimes when God doesn't answer the prayers that I want Him to, or that God doesn't answer in the way that I want Him to do, it's just God's greatness that allows me to believe in His goodwill even when I ask for something that doesn't come in the way that I ask it or in the way that I imagined it. Loved ones, we need to leave room for God. Does it all make sense? All the, No, it doesn't always make sense. It doesn't make earthly sense. But if the God of all things, earthly and eternal, were at work, would you expect him to be limited by your wisdom and perceptions? 
No. You would expect him to work in ways beyond your imagining. And that is just what he is promising, to do immeasurably above and beyond all that we can ask or imagine. I was reading in one place, in a world that whirls in an endless procession of unpredictable events and personal challenges, we lose track of what God does moment by moment to preserve us and his purposes for our lives. We know that our God loves us, but almost the pressures, but, but amidst the pressures of rents to pay, jobs to perform, medical results to await, tests to take, and transitions to make, we wonder still, is our God able to help me here today? The Bible's message of a sovereign God who rules over all things in all places among all people for all eternity calms our hearts and stimulates our prayers with the simple affirmation, He is able. How will God do more? How will God do more? Two ways. One, sovereignly. God is able to do according to His power. According to His power. Loved ones, it is God's sovereign power that is at work. You see, He's not limited by our frailty. He's not limited by our feebleness. He's not limited by what we can think or by what we imagine. What God accomplishes is according to His power. See, Paul has just prayed that, that, that God would fill us and he wants God, us to understand that God will enable us, that God will make us powerful, that God works in us and through us. And God's sovereign power is what will accomplish everything that is beyond our ability to ask or imagine. If we had time, I would take you to the book of Job and start at Job 36 And begin at Job 36 and go through Job 36, Job 37, 38, 39, 40, 41, and come to 42. And in those chapters, you see evidence of God's power again and again and again and again in a world. At which point, Job finally sits before God and says, I am dumbfounded. I am a sinner. I had no clue how powerful and how big you were. How is God able to do much more? Because God is sovereign. Because he is all-powerful. And then, this is the stunner for me. And you may have got this years ago. It just has sort of been rattling in my mind in the last number of weeks. He says, God is able to do much more through you. According to his power that works in you. Did you catch, as I read all of those things, God's power wasn't working outside of people. In other words, it was God's power that was working through Moses when he raised his hand and the sea parted. It was God's power that was working through Joshua when he said, Son, stand still, and maybe he just wanted an extra hour, and God says, I'm giving you a day. It was God's power that was working through that widow as she got one jar after another jar after another jar and kept filling it with oil. It was God's power that was working through Daniel as he prayed and he got on his knees with his buddies and he said, God, I need help. And God gave him the dream and the interpretation. God's power works in you and me. You see, he's just prayed that we would be strengthened by the Spirit so that Christ might dwell in us. He's just prayed that we might be rooted and go down deep in the love of God. He's just prayed that our heads would be expanded beyond 
um, ability to understand the love of Christ. He's just prayed that we would be filled with the fullness of God. And now he says, and that he may do immeasurably more than you ask or imagine through his power that works in you. In other words, God wants to empower you to do more than you can ask or imagine to fix your marriage. He wants you to do more than you can ask or imagine through his power that works in you to raise your kids. He wants you to do more than you can ask or imagine according to his power that works in you to be a witness at the school that you go to or at the university you attend. In other words, it's God's power that works through us to accomplish these astounding things that are beyond what we can ever ask or imagine. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9. A familiar verse to many of us in the church. Uh, but he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Did you get that? We're the weak ones. We're the frail ones. But God's power working in us enables us to accomplish more than we can ever ask or imagine. And then you go back to uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, to that uh, amazing statement that he makes, but we have this treasure in jars of clay. That means he's talking about us. Jars of clay were pretty fragile things. You tipped one over, you dropped it, and it would shatter in a, in a thousand um, shards. We have this treasure in jars of clay. Why? To show the surpassing power of God, or that the surpassing power belongs to God and not us. In other words, that when we begin to accomplish things for God, whether it's in our marriage, in our homes, in our schools, in our community, in our missions, in our ministry, all of a sudden we realize, wow, that's not me. I can't do that. I didn't think of that. I didn't imagine that. Boy, God, you did way more than I ever asked you to do. And he says to show that it's the surpassing power of God in us. So we are afflicted in every way, but we're not crushed. We are perplexed, but we're not driven to despair. We are persecuted, but we're not forsaken. We are struck down, but we're not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our flesh. Paul's bold conclusion. Do you get it? To him be the glory. If I were to read this sentence grammatically according to the Greek, this is how I would read it. Now glory to him. The powerful one, according to the power that works in us, who is able to do exceedingly above all that we ask or imagine. Now glory to him in the church, in Christ Jesus, in all generations, now and forevermore. Amen. See, loved ones, what he's saying is that when it comes down to it, if God is able to do far more abundantly beyond all we ask or imagine... Who gets the glory? Certainly not me. I couldn't even think of it. I couldn't even imagine it. But it's God at work through me. And so all I can do is say, God, be glorified. 
God be glorified in this church, which displays the manifold wisdom of God. God be glorified in Christ Jesus as He continues to bring people into the family of God as He works in saving ways to give life to those who are dead. God be glorified not only in the past, not only in the present, not only in the future, but into eternity, now and forevermore, God be glorified. I was reading a story, or just an account from Dr. Will uh, Wilbur Chapman at one of his meetings, and a man got up and gave this testimony. I got off the Pensa- I got off the, at the Pennsylvania Depot as a tramp, and for a year I begged on the streets for a living. One day I touched a man on the shoulder and I said, "Hey, Mister, can you give me a dime?" As as I did, he turned and I saw his face. I was shocked to see it was my own father. Father, Father, do you know me? Throwing his arms around me with tears, he said, Oh, my son, I found you. I found you. A dime? All I have is yours. And then the man said, Come to think of it, I was a tramp begging for my own father for 10 cents when for 18 years he had been looking for me to give me all that he was worth. Listen, when you come before your heavenly father, don't ask for a dime. Take all that he's got to give you. Don't live sort of um, as a beggar asking for a dime here and a quarter there and a nickel there. Ask God to open up the resources of heaven to do immeasurably more that you can ask or imagine according to his power that works within you so that he might be glorified in the church and in Christ Jesus now and forevermore.